today we had a bit of a town hall with the left joint primary candidates, Governor Ted Dett, House Majority Leader Viper Darius, and Senior Jefferson Senator Epsilon Leclerc. Uh, we talked about foreign policy, some economic standpoints, uh, their plans should they be elected uh, president, and why they think they are better than the uh, other left candidates to receive the nomination. So without further ado, thank you for listening to Article 1. Here is the left joint primary town hall. Uh, Governor Ted Dett, thank you so much for joining us with Article 1. Thank you so much for having me here. It's an honor to be able to participate in this debate, which from looks of it is having a wonderful audience. This is a really contested and competitive race, and I hope this debate will be able to enlighten everyone to, well, who's on the fence to choose who they think will be the best fit for them. And uh, we also have Senator Epsilon from Jefferson. Epsilon, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, hello. Uh, my name's uh, Epson Leclerc. I'm the current Senate Majority Leader and the Senior Senator from uh, Jefferson right now. And um, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to uh, have a good, friendly debate with all of our excellent candidates here on the left. And I'm hoping for some uh, informative discussions, discussions to take place today. So, yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And then we also have House Majority Leader Viper Darius. Viper, thank you for, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, uh, Speaker Rose. It's a pleasure to be here with Governor Ted of the North and Senator Epsilon. My name is Viper Darius. I am the House Majority Leader, and I'm also a member of the House of Delegates. It's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to this debate. All right. So we did have some listener questions uh, that we were going to go ahead and get to. Is there anything right off the bat uh, that you want to just let make sure that the listeners know about you specifically? Any uh, policies you plan to fight for? Any specific plans that you have should you be uh, the nominee for how campaign's going to go? Anything like that? Uh, let's go ahead and start with Senator Epsilon. Yeah, so um, if I have the, the honor of being... Um elected president, um, I would definitely be a very active uh, president, uh, definitely working with Congress, with my extensive links with, with uh, members of Congress, which I've, um, in my congressional experience, will definitely come in handy to get real policy passed. Because at the end of the day, for a president to be truly effective, they have to be able to get legislation through Congress. Um, and I've proven I've done that. And so I hope to do that in the in the future as well. So we can get things like student loan relief uh, passed instead of being vetoed by corporate libertarian Republican presidents as they have been recently, um, as well as public banking, um, a, a guaranteed minimum of $60,000 salary for uh, our teachers and educators, um, as well as other important issues. So uh, yes, yeah, really I, I hope you take a yeah. good look at me. Uh, this debate. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, Governor Ted, do you want to go ahead and just give a little brief summary what you want the listeners to know? Well, before I start listing any of my policies, I'd just like to let all the listeners know that because we have limited time in this debate, not every concept will be discussed. So if anyone has any questions about what I believe in, please view my platform. You should be able to find it on my campaign server, in Twitter, or it's likely everywhere on the internet by now. So what I want to do, what my movement is about, is an opportunity to drive 
the American dream straight, to make the foundation upon which America rests a fair and just one where basically everyone who puts the skill and the work in, what their skill and work in, can do what they want to do and thrive at it. This is one, this is a movement to make an America where big corporations do not run wild with their lives and their economy through the use of monopoly, unfair regulations, and uncompetitive practices. Where really the workers are the ones calling the shots, not executives in smoke-filled rooms. Right. I push for policies such as making the basic income higher to be a meaningful one, one that can actually be a useful one to citizens around America. I push for making teacher wages fair and to make an education system which is accountable and one that helps to make the American dream succeed for everyone, no matter what they want to do. Liberal arts, the STEM fields, all of these things are all important and they all contribute to a society in which everyone can thrive. Thank you so much, Governor Ted. Uh, Majority Leader, Leader Viper, what would you like the listeners to know about your platform? Thank you, Speaker Rose. I think I agree strongly with many of the policies that Governor Ted espoused and Senator Epsilon. What I ran on or what I wish to run on is the idea of striving for better, which is what my campaign is about. The American dream, in my view, is the idea of achieving something great, but achieving something that is still out of reach for many Americans. Not every American has the opportunities that people like I have had in getting the education that is needed to survive in the job market. I understand there are some people who have and some people who do not have. I understand that there are people who have been hurt by COVID-19 and its impact on the economy. So my immediate goal is to deal with COVID-related relief. Uh, specifically, I want to deal with uh, sector-based COVID relief. My campaign wants to focus on the restaurant industry which has likely been hurt significantly due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I want to invest in housing, specifically for those who cannot afford for basic, uh, on basic housing. Um, and I also want to invest in healthcare. I passed legislation called the uh, Protecting Those with Pre-existing Con Conditions Act, which protected those with pre-existing conditions, uh, which helped millions of Americans across the country. But we need to do better. And my priorities has to do with continuing to push for more economic relief for the American people, giving to people who do not have, and striving for a better America where everyone has the opportunities to thrive and do better. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we're going to go ahead and move on to some of our listener questions. Uh, the first question we have from comes from a listener in the North. They ask, what are your thoughts on many left unity members working with the libertarian administration? While bipartisan, bipartisanship is a noble goal, aren't these left members of the cabinet working against the policies they would like to see enacted? So let's start with uh, Majority Leader Viper. How do you feel about the left unity members in the Sandoval cabinet? Um, I, I'm not against the idea of having left wing members within the cabinet of uh, of Sandoval, I think that it's important to have talented members within within the cabinet. It's important to have talented members within the executive branch. So it's not about necessarily what party you come from. If you have a talent or if you understand specific 
sectors of policy or specific sectors of expertise, it's good to have those people there. But that isn't to say that it isn't our job to hold them to high standards. I know that there are many people within the left that have gone to the Sandoval administration and and have worked under Sandoval. But that doesn't mean that I have not pushed for better standards and have not directly criticized the Sandoval administration for not being able to do spending reports, for not being able to do the LBT report on time, for not being able to do cogent foreign policy. Right. That is something that we have to work on as a country to strive for better, regardless of which party you're from. Um, and it, 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 the idea of, of partisanship, as Washington said in his Washington farewell speech, is dangerous because it prevents us from looking at the bigger picture, which is that we all want an America that understands a code in foreign policy, an America that provides for economic aid for those who need it. Um, so that's my answer to that Thank question. Thank you so much. Thank you. So, uh, Senator Epsilon, how do you feel about the cabinet members uh, within Sandoval's cabinet being largely left-wing at this point? Um, I, I definitely do not. I, I agree with um, House Majority Leader uh, Viper Darius that uh, I have no inherent opposition to somebody um, on the left working uh, in Sandoval's uh, cabinet. I've voted for some of them. Uh, however, I, I do believe that that's kind of conditioned on bringing that belief that the left really has of government by the people, for the people, with them into um, that position. And so when I'm judging, you know, whether they're right or, or left-wing um, nominees for a position um, on the cabinet or, or in the federal government that has to be um, confirmed by the Senate, you know, that's what I'm looking for. Um, and so I would hope that, that any, any member who, who joins the Sandoval administration um, keeps those values um, close to them and, and doesn't let any political pressure um, get, get in the way of, of their duty to the, to the people they serve. And, and I think, uh, by and large, um, we, we've seen that. Um, I think the real issue is how the, the Sandoval administration has just not at all um, been managed well. Um, and I don't really blame that with the cabinet because many of these, these individuals can and, and have been active before. Um, it's merely that the, the Sandoval administration doesn't know how to, how to manage them. Um, so I, I, would, I would say the buck stops with the president on, on any on most criticisms I have of the cabinet um, because it's just not well managed. Thank you. Well, regardless of partisan leanings, the American people deserve a cabinet which is competent and active. If that involves members of the right or members of the left, they have to be active and competent, but they also have to push for the values that are helping make the American dream work. Now, the members of the Sandoval administration some of them are great, and they are all working, but the central administration has not been doing a good job at managing the cabinet as a whole. Now, individual members are great. Some of them are left, some of them are right. I agree. What needs to be happening is that members are pushing for policy, which helps everyone. What we are seeing is that the cabinet has not been competently managed. There has not been correctly spending reports being published by departments such as the Department of Agriculture and the Department of the Treasury, which 
we deserve to have a cabinet that will achieve these things which are necessary for the legislative foundation of America. Now, some of these departments, which have not been working correctly, have been left-wing. And that deserves the same accountability and the same criticism that any cabinet does. So when we have a left-wing cabinet, these people should contribute to the workings of the American government because regardless of who the president is, we need a cabinet that can actually help the people. If we are limiting ourselves by these partisan squabbles, it's not going to lead, in some cases, in many cases, to a government that actually works. So we should not be mad or criticize these cabinet officials for working under a right-wing administration. However, they need to be working for the American people and working to make good, meaningful change inside of their positions. It does not matter if they're left-wing or right-wing. If they are not pushing for effective change, they are bad nonetheless. Thank you so much. Um, 30 seconds to respond, House Majority Leader. Uh, yeah, I'd just like to re re uh, reiterate uh, Governor Ted's point. I agree with him that it's not necessarily about w what party you're from. It's about whether you can actually affect good change within whatever whatever administration you are a part of. I also have to point out that when it comes to the cabinet, my complaint is that they're not able to do basic things like spending reports, like, for example, under, under Title V of the December budget, which was what I wrote. They weren't able to do that effectively because they didn't even have an effective cabinet. So, yes, it matters to have quote-unquote left-wing uh, members with left-wing ideologies, but what matters more is having an efficient executive branch, and the president doesn't even have that. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we're going to move on to a uh, economics question. So I'm going to be a little bit strict on the time uh, timing here. We're going to give two minutes to respond each, and then we can have rebuttals if necessary. Um, but would you describe the efforts by the emerging economies, BRICS, to reform the international monetary system as successful? So do you see BRICS as internationally successful in, ref in reforming the monetary system? Uh, we're going to start with the Senator Epsilon. Do you have a response? Um, yeah, yes, definitely. Um, I, yeah, so uh, definitely uh, more of a niche question, but I, I'm, I'm into this because I love foreign policy, as anybody who, who knows me uh, knows as well. Um, so in regards to the reforms that... Um, emerging economies such as the BRICS have been pushing um, to the international monetary system, I would say by and large, they have, they've not been particularly successful um, at actually changing the way um, our, our international finance works, um, especially in regards to say um, the IMF or the World Bank or um, I'll include the WTO and that as well, even though that's a, a little bit different than just finance, but um, they're definitely pushing for a more, um, I would say equitable system um, however, in the case, I, I hate putting the, the BRICS together, and it's frankly, it's an outdated term at this point, because at the time it was, it was coined, um, you know, BRICS is, is the, the terminology for, for uh, Brazil, Russia, India, um, China, and uh, South Africa. So just, um, just to and at the time, focus, those, those do you find those were, to be successful? Yeah. Would, you, would you say that you find um, them to be successful in the, those uh, well, reforms? I, no, I don't. I don't believe they've been successful at the reforms. I think those reforms that have been made recently um, have definitely been in the right direction overall. 
Um, but the countries, for example, like Russia and China, when they're looking at that kind of reform, they're oftentimes looking at it to make sure that, you know, the monetary system is, is um, detached from any kind of morality or democratic norms and that right. it's just business. Right. Um, they don't they don't want any conditions attached to, for example, aid if it's given out. Um, they, they, they're perfectly fine, you know, strengthening and, and propping up uh, anti-democratic regimes. And I that's not do... the kind of reforms that I would uh, support as if I were elected president. Right. Thank you so much. I appreciate that answer. Uh, Governor Ted. So what we have been seeing from BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, is that they have been pushing to gain a greater amount of leverage in the international markets with trying to gain positions in the IMF, but overall their candidates have not been winning. As Viper said in the debate previously, we did see people like Rakuram Rajan serve as the chief economist of the IMF and Chinese national, Justin Yifulin as World Bank chief economist, but overall they have not been successful at working to get their candidates into the leadership positions of various international organizations. However, oftentimes, especially with countries such as Russia and China, the nations have been not been pushing to make an equitable system. They've been pushing to have themselves gain, especially when it is disregarding the morality and basic human rights and democratic traditions that we as America should be supporting. But overall, they do have some amount of leverage over the system. However, they are working towards making their system, especially with China and Russia, to be more biased towards them. Okay, thank you so much, Governor Ted. Um, House Majority Leader Viper, do you have a response? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Governor Ted in that point. I also generally agree with what... Um, Senator Epsilon said the article that he cited and the article that I cited was uh, an article from Cynthia Roberts uh, and Leslie Elliott Armagillo. And they basically wrote about this basic history of the BRICS, right? The Brazilian, uh, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, China, and South Africa as a collective block within uh, the international system. And generally they have mixed, they have mixed results. So for example, uh, I would argue that it was only after the recession that BRICS were able to gain some kind of a leverage based on how they're able to invest in SDRs, only conditionally on diversifying the currency systems that govern international uh, revenue systems, specifically in monetary policy. Now, what we saw, as Governor Ted laid out, is that BRICS generally as a coalition had their own divisions. You had differences in viewpoints between China and Brazil and India when it came to monetary policy. You also had differences within Russia, keeping more open capital flows than China itself. And you also saw that they weren't able to agree on candidates to be direct, the director of the IMF. And so they could only settle for like deputy positions to gain some kind of a foothold within the IMF. However, generally speaking, the United States and Europe still have a general control over the interna International Monetary Fund. So there has been mixed efforts or mixed results, but there's also been some success. For example, in 2013, we saw 
uh, the United States being willing to meet with BRICS as a result of the uh, the investment from China uh, at the uh, at the height of the recessionary period to uh, deal with economic growth worldwide. So, okay. I generally, uh, oh, yeah, I can finish my answer. I, I don't necessarily agree with the BRICS as a coalition. I think, as Senator Epsilon said, it's outdated. And the United States has to push for an economic policy that helps develop nations uh, while also keeping a more flexible uh, monetary policy in general. Okay. So then just real quick, uh, I'll ask yes or no, uh, please, if you just answer yes or no. Um, do you think that this policy would, or excuse me, these reforms would be viable in America? Senator Epsilon. Um, well, I, I believe a more equitable international system would be, uh, in general, would, would be better for the United States as, as well as developing countries. So okay. I would say yes. it's very simply, yes, okay. with, with some nuance. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Governor Ted, would you say yes or no, these reforms are viable? I would say that overall pushing for a more equitable system of international econom economics will allow for both America and all the nations of the world to thrive, respecting these democratic traditions and the basic human rights. So yes, I do believe these things are feasible. Okay. And then uh, House Majority Leader Viper, would you believe these are viable reforms? Again, yes, with nuance. Thank you. I appreciate that. So um, kind of going into, since we're speaking about uh, economic systems currently, uh, we have a question from Dixie. They ask, does the national debt scare you? Uh, Senator Epsilon, would you like to answer uh, that question? Thank you. Um, so the national debt doesn't scare me. I don't believe that... Um, Debt is an, is inherently something to fear. Um, I, I would say that, of course, taking out debt in general is is to be avoided when possible. But if at the end of the day the choice is between taking out debt and making sure uh, a family gets the food on the table or that um, our economy stays afloat, I'm I'm definitely going to we'll take out the debt for sure. Um, I will say what does concern me is the debt ceiling, and this is a Frankly, out it was never quite useful. An outdated system where we have to raise the debt ceiling, else we might go into default. And all it does is really just increase political brinkmanship and and raises all kinds of concerns every single time we get close to that. And so that's something that I am concerned about, and something I will definitely be pushing for, uh, both in the Senate and if it's still applicable, applicable as president to to eliminate because it just does not um help us in the slightest to have that all right thank you so much um governor ted how do you feel about the deficit does it scare you especially considering the fact that we are just recovering from a global health pandemic the fact that we are in the debt we are in is actually quite surprising for how effective our recovery has been in overall debt should be something to be avoided as Viper has said, or as Epsilon has said, but in times of crises, we cannot afford to not take on debt. There is the potential for massive economic damage and for massive humanitarian damage. As Epsilon said, it's sometimes the difference between having a family be able to put food on the table 
or to take on more debt to the national deficit. And during this time of crisis with the COVID-19 pandemic, I actually do think that we should have a debt in order to foster better economic growth. Now, if there is a possibility to not have a debt and still do the things that are necessary to do to save lives and to save families, then yes, I would choose the option which doesn't incur the most debt, but that's not an option here. We need to spend money to gain money, right? So, Currently, executive, not so much fear of the debt as much uh, as proactive. No, I do not fear the debt. Yeah, we need to use productive. We have to productively use the debt. Yes, but we shouldn't be terrified of the debt. And I agree with Epsilon that the debt ceiling is also an outdated concept that we should work towards changing and or maybe even getting rid of. All right. Thank you so much. House Majority Leader Viper, do you have a response? How do you feel about the current debt? Yeah, I echo the arguments laid out by Governor Ted of the North and Senator Epsilon. I think the debt ceiling is ridiculous. I think the debt ceiling is a horrible policy. It's a policy that has created brigmanship, as Senator Epsilon has talked about. And it's a policy that, frankly, is not based on fact. It's not based on any sort of economic understanding. And I think we should abolish the debt ceiling. Uh, and we should focus specifically from an economic perspective on things like the debt to GDP ratio, which is a better understanding of how we deal with economic growth. During a, a pandemic or dealing with recession, I think we need to be spending more and we need to be dealing with relief programs, specifically spending on the service economy or service sector, spending on the transport sector, spending on energy, spending on healthcare specific sectors of the economy that may have been hurt as, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, we need to spend more and we should spend it efficiently to help the people in need and we should stop fear-mongering about the debt. Thank you so much. I, I greatly appreciate that answer. So we've been uh, hearing with it, in regards to economic policy, it seems that you all are very focused on the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we have a listener question here from, I believe it's the North. Yes, it is from the North. What are your plans to push for an effective COVID-19 economic recovery? Um, Governor Ted, would you like to go first? Yes, thank you. So with this COVID-19 economic recovery, we have to look at which sectors of the economy have been damaged the most by the pandemic. Now, if you look at the data, retail and restaurants, particularly small businesses, have been hurt the most because of the nature of the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants have been unable to make as much money as before, and particularly small businesses, which don't have much wealth on hand to withstand these periods of low, of low volume, have been going out of business at a really high rate. Now, what we need to focus on with the COVID-19 recovery is to invest and, stim and provide stimulus for all of these small businesses which have been really suffering under these economic tensions with the COVID pandemic. Now, this does not mean we cannot stimu provide stimulus to the rest of the economy, but we have to prioritize yes. the small businesses which have been hurting the most, which by far a very large amount of people are employed by. If we were to lose these businesses, this would be catastrophic for the American economy. So we should target our relief efforts to the ones that need it the most, not the big corporations who have the biggest pockets to give us. Right. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so 
uh, Majority Leader Viper, uh, I know that you've pushed for a lot of COVID-19 specific legislation in the House. Um, how do you plan to take those uh, policy points and those goals and, and push for them uh, towards economic recovery if you were to be elected president? Yeah, thank you for that question. I think it's an important question because let's look at what we have done so far, right? Under the first 131st session, I passed the COVID-19 Small Business Loan Protection Act, which provided $50 billion to small businesses. And I believe it was a good policy, but it's not comparable to what other countries have been doing. For example, in France, they passed a policy that provided $300 billion, euros rather, rather, to help small businesses. And France is a much smaller country than we are, and yet they're, they've been investing more. I also passed a policy within the Coronavirus Aid and Recovery Act to provide another $30 billion to small businesses. And I wrote the Small Business Loan Protection Act within the North to help small businesses there. And I wrote the Link Loan Program within the North to help build up partnerships between the private and public sectors to, build, to help small businesses. And I invested in worker cooperatives in the Northern um, state. What I want to do now is focus on transport, focus on the energy sector, focus on housing. I have a $50 billion housing plan providing help to specific communities affected by redlining policies. That's a long-term and short-term policy specifically related to the pandemic and also related to uh, long-term racial inequalities because African Americans have been affected by redlining policies in the past. I wish to provide economic relief for restaurants within the country. Uh, the restaurant market accounts for $799 billion, uh, according to 2017 numbers. And I want to provide aid to the healthcare sector, which may have been significantly hurt by the pandemic. And to push for that, we need to be aggressive and we need to be very stubborn about what we want to fight for. Yes, I would agree. Thank you. I appreciate that answer. Uh, Senior Senator Epsilon, how do you plan to address COVID-19 in regards to economic recovery? Uh, thank you. Um, it's definitely one of the most important issues of our time. Um, I know uh, I've, I've worked with uh, House Majority Leader uh, Viper on, on passing um, the Coronavirus Aid and Recovery Act, or CARA, previously, which was a vital piece of legislation to get us started on, on the path to recovery, making sure every um, American gets a direct payment of uh, 1400 as well as uh, various other provisions, making sure aid gets out to, to those who need it. Um, but there's more to do, um, as as others pointed out, especially that the retail and the and the restaurant um, industry has been hit particularly hard um, by this pandemic. And as president, I would I would definitely support um, uh, proposals to to help those areas, especially the workers in those areas, retail workers, especially grocery retail workers, as well as restaurant workers, um, and. Uh, have been hit particularly hard. They've 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 risked their lives just <laughs> to to do their job because of the pandemic, um, especially grocery retail. I would say, right. um, and and I and I would definitely support um, a a program to to uh, compensate them for that risk because unfortunately the private sector has not provided the hazard pay that they originally said they would. Um, they, they, they called these individuals heroes, for example, oftentimes, and they would give them extra, extra, um, extra pay, um, every, every week because of that. But they, they ended up ending those programs oftentimes just within a, a month or two. Right. Um, and that's, that's unacceptable. Um, 
and so I would I would support a program to um, compensate um, every uh, especially essential workers uh, every essential worker um, for the for the work they did during the pandemic because frankly they are heroes and and if the private sector won't do it well then, then we need to recognize right now that exactly yeah. exactly right now then the government at least needs to do it for them because we work for the people absolutely right thank you so much for that answer so i have um kind of shifting a little bit away from economics and from the pandemic uh, we have a question from the north if there were to be a vacancy on the federal judiciary namely the supreme court what would you look for in a potential nominee um majority leader viper would you like to answer what your judicial your ideal judicial uh, candidate would be yeah so first of all i believe a good judicial candidate uh, candidate would be one that is very uh is qualified in their understanding of the law so i want to see a judicial a judicial candidate who has experience uh who has an understanding of the constitution i also want a judicial, judicial candidate who respects uh, the right to privacy I want a judicial, uh, judicial candidate who understands that um, the role of the judicial branch is to interpret the con the the constitution, and I I believe that is the most important uh, way to look at uh, the situation. Now, when it comes to actual ideology, I I look at candidates that value uh, specifically on. Um, specifically on Roe v. Wade, uh, the right to privacy and the right to um, having uh, an abortion. But I also think that it, it's not just about what cases you support when it comes to choosing a judicial candidate. I think it has to do with experience. It has to do with an understanding of the law uh, above everything else. It's not just about whether you agree with specific uh, viewpoints on uh, on how the law should be interpreted. Even, for example, if I disagree with some of the viewpoints with some of the judicial candidates on the Commerce Clause, I believe if you're experienced and if you can under explain your understandings effectively, then I likely support you. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that answer. Um, Governor Ted. What I would look for, thank you for the question. Absolutely. Thank you for the question, Speaker. What I would look for in any judicial nominee, just as Viper said, is that I would look for legal competence and a very detailed knowledge of the Constitution. We cannot afford to have our, the most supreme court of our judicial system to be manned by people who are somewhat, who are not able to fully comprehend and understand the Constitution as, they, as it was written. Now, what I would also look for in any judge or in any justice would be for someone who is able to proactively ask questions in a hearing and gain the knowledge they need to make an effective ruling on any decision that is presented to them. Just as with legal competence, the Supreme Court deserves quality, competency, and activity with these cases. Sometimes this has not been provided by our current Supreme Court. I'm not going to name any particular justices, mm -hmm. but we really need to have a Supreme Court which is more capable of getting the information it needs and to provide a interpretation of the Constitution that is based off knowledge and facts that are acquired through the case, not off the intuition of the justice. 
Now, furthermore, I would look for a justice which, in particular, you know, make sure that they understand they are not there to legislate issues regarding the Constitution, but to interpret what the Constitution says. Activists, judges, justices are not good for the integrity of our judicial system, and I would work to nominate a justice which is not activist in any way. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that answer, Governor Ted. Uh, Senior Senator Epsilon, I know that you recently voted on a uh, Supreme Court nominee, uh, Chief Justice Thanos. Uh, mm-hmm. What do you look for when you're voting on these uh, nominees? How, what do you look for? What are the question in the questions you ask? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely looking for uh, first of all knowledge knowledge of the law, but but also um, a devotion to to the Constitution and what the Constitution serves, which is the the people. Um, by the you know we have a government by the people for the people. Um, and so, of course, I, I had my disagreements with uh, now Chief Justice uh, Thanos. Um, but if I, I think it's a different matter entirely because when, when it goes to the, the Senate, um, at the end of the day, um, the Senate is, is a more, what's the word for it, political body. And so those considerations, unfortunately, come into, into play more. If I were president, though, um, I would... Of course, you know, not not supporting anybody with with fringe theories, um, such as, for example, the the uh, unconstitutional constitutional amendment theory. That's that's you know that's been uh, talked about uh, recently, um, and and that's I- anyone who who has that view of the constitution uh, would not have my support. But um, really, I don't think the president should be going out and looking for nominees to um, a point for some sort of political purpose. Um, and so if I were president, I would appoint a, a pres- an independent presidential commission to draft up a short list of, of, of candidates, um, maybe three or four, uh, whatever they come up with. And, and as president, I would pick somebody from that list, I, as long as they're qualified. Um, I, don't, I don't see the point in, in looking for because the courts, unfortunately, as we've seen recently, like with the historic mistake um, that the Supreme Court made with uh, Computer Guy versus United, United States, right. which gutted a key provision of the minimum wage, um, like the courts have been used by, by the right to have been really weaponized by the right recently um, so you would to, fight to for attack the, legislation for the um, that's important to the people. Court. Yes, yes, I, I don't. I, I do not want. I've been really disappointed with the way judicial nominations have been done the past few years, um, and, and I, I don't I don't want to continue that process if I have the fortune of being elected. So I'm I'm going to create an independent presidential commission. I will pick somebody from the list that they provide with me to me. Um, it, it's not about politics. It's really right. about just preventing the politicization of, of of the courts from going any further. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, I did have a couple of questions specifically uh, that were asked. We had listeners ask questions. Uh, One was for Epsilon and one was for Viper. Okay, so the question that I have was um, for, this is for all candidates. How high should the top marginal income tax rate be? Uh, Governor Ted, how do you, how do you 
typically, when you think of the uh, income tax rate, what would be the top margin for you? Well, really, I don't believe we have an income tax to begin with. So, and we shouldn't have an income tax to begin with because these types of taxes, even with tax brackets, tend to affect the poor. And I would not, as president, work to restore that income tax, which, by the way, right now is constitutionally protected. It will require a constitutional amendment to restore the income tax. By the way, I do support getting rid of that getting rid of that constitutional amendment because it does limit fiscal policy of the federal government in times of crisis. But as of right now, we do not have an income tax and there are better forms of taxation that are less hard on the poor and people who don't have that much wealth. So I don't think, do you think the correct answer to that is that we should not have an income tax normally and should replace it with other forms of tax, such as the VAT, the LVT, which we already have, supplemental income such as a wealth tax and corporate taxes, all of which have been effectively shown to bring in revenue to the federal government without overly stressing the poor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Governor Ted. Um, Majority Leader Viper, how do you feel uh, about the past, the income tax from the past, and then if that were to be reinstituted, um, reestablished, what would the uh, top margin be for you in that? Well, um, it's an interesting question considering we don't have an income tax right now. We have a land value tax, um, and that would depend on if we were to introduce the income tax and based on the 33rd Amendment um, abolishment that was introduced today, actually, by Representative Randy, um, we could see an introduction of the income tax. Um, and the question is, what other taxes are there going to be with the income tax to account for those tax rates? Now, if you're just going to go back to pre-2018 levels, then it depends on the Laffer curve, the Laffer curve, right? The Laffer curve is a principle of how can you maximize revenue without creating an adverse negative effect. Some economists talked about a number 52% as a top marginal rate. Some talk about 70%. I mostly have a more moderate view on that. I generally think it's closer to around 52% as a top marginal rate. Um, and I, I actually disagree with the notion that the income tax is necessarily a bad policy. I think, yes, in terms of implementation, there have been issues with the income tax, just like the wealth tax in other countries like France or in other countries within Europe. But if you have good regulations to provide or to prevent people from uh, evading their taxes, you can still have a good income tax and a good tax policy. So I don't think we should throw the baby out of the bathwater simply because we have some issues with implementing the tax system. Though I would still argue it depends on how we move forward and what we need to do with regards to our revenue intake. Thank you so much for that answer. Uh, Senator Epsilon, how do you uh, perceive the top income tax rate? And, and, um, and yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's definitely an interesting question right now, and it's particularly pertinent given the um, resolution that was uh, just introduced in the House by Representative Randy. Um, I'll just say off the bat, I am totally in support of that resolution. Regardless of what you think of the income tax, we should at least have the policy option. Um, 
and it, frankly, the way that that the Thirty Third Amendment was was ratified through a very contentious constitutional convention um, is is problematic um, in and of itself. Um, I, I will say, um, in regards to an income tax, un, unlike um, uh, Governor Ted, um, I, I definitely would support an income tax, and I don't at all believe that an income tax will inherently hurt the poorest the most because what we can do is we can we can just set a, a rate and say anybody over a certain amount of income will, will will pay this income tax so what i would do is i would set um uh, a rate um probably um uh, let's say 30 40 percent for at least people with over 30 million 20 million in income a year that does not hurt the poor we can use that income, that those revenues, to to help our, our working class families and individuals, to help them by actually fully funding all these programs that we need. Because right now, our government is frankly running on fumes. Um, you know, the State Department has been has been slashed significantly. For example, um, multiple programs until just recently were not even reauthorized, and it's thanks to to people such as um, such as uh, Senator Jeb. Um, who I've worked extensively with that that we're starting to um, get more get more of these programs reauthorized and making sure that we're actually serving the people right. um, with with these uh, statutorily statutory obligations that that we said we would we would uh, help them with. Um, but and you think yeah, that could be accomplished and better with definitely... diversified taxes and, and yeah 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 exactly. Um, I'm 100% in favor of, of public revenue diversity, and, and the income tax is not this this evil um, in a way boogeyman exactly. Especially because we don't even have to um, we don't we don't have to have people who are below certain incomes pay it. As a matter of fact, before 2018, the government lost money oftentimes taxing people below a certain amount. So there's no there's no point in doing that. We can right. we can set you know tax brackets. And, and just exempt everybody Thank else. Thank you. Thank um, you. Anyways. I, I appreciate that answer. Thank you so much. Um, I do want to get to a couple of the direct questions. Um, this one was a question for Viper from a listener in Puerto Rico. The highest office you have served is in representative. Why are you ready to be president? Uh, thank you very much for that question. I, I will say this. When it comes to the qualifications to be president, uh, when I ran for president, when I began my campaign, I talked about breaking norms. Well, here I am trying to break a norm to try and win the presidency, running as a representative. Um, but it doesn't just represent me being a representative. There are many things that define me. First of all, my background as someone who has family from India, who has immigrated to the United States, what happens as a result is that my intercultural background has helped me understand uh, more people, not only in India, but people across the globe, in my connection with Europe, in my understanding of uh, French, learning more languages, but also in studying international relations and studying economics um, within my university and teaching there. But not only did I do that, uh, I think when it comes to my uh, understanding of my qualifications as a legislator, chief legislation is quite important when it comes to presidential candidates because I've passed six pieces of legislation at the federal level in the span of five months. And within those five months, I also passed six pieces of legislation in the North. I'm also a member of the Northern House of Delegates. I'm not just a representative. I also served as the Secretary of State in the North. 
And I've negotiated a deal with a, a spokesperson from Ex Exelon to ensure that there was a decommissioning of a nuclear plant within Pennsylvania. In my short time as House Majority Leader, we've done more executive oversight uh, in recent history within the, within the House. We called the Secretary of State to talk about foreign policy within the lower chamber. We passed a monumental stimulus bill. Uh, we passed health care to provide for those with pre-existing conditions. So I have a background of foreign policy. I have a background of understanding people within the global world. And I have a background of pushing for legislation both in the North and at the federal level. And I'm the only one at the stage that has really worked at the both levels at the same time and still got it done effectively. So I think those are, are the reasons that I can be qualified to be president of the United States. Thank you. Um, thank you for your answer. Uh, Senior Senator Epsilon, we have a question for you also from a listener in Puerto Rico. Uh, during the Garland administration, you led a Senate majority that helped gridlock the nation. Why should Americans trust you to beat partisan gridlock as president? Uh, thank you for that question, because it's, it's something I, I believe will definitely be, be touched on in any general election if I have the honor of getting this joint nomination. Um, so when, when I entered as Senate Majority Leader, there was a crisis um, going on with, with the President pro tempore and, and uh, whether or not that would actually reflect the majority in the Senate or not. Um, the, the Vice President was, at the time, uh, Vice President Cabin was particularly partisan. Um, and it, it devolved into to an incident where it turned into gridlock because the, the libertarian, well, the now libertarian Republican um, party refused to nominate a, a president pro tempore and, and ground the Senate to a halt um, for, for quite a, a length of time. Um, at, at the end of it, um, uh, certain SDP members um, ended up ended up uh, working with, with the, the libertarians and ended up uh, leaving the, the left caucus in favor of the libertarian caucus. Um, we've we patched that over by now. I still have, I work well with with uh, all of those individuals, and and I believe going you know that shows that my ability to put things behind me and, and to work for people, even if I've had uh, fierce di disagreements with them, because as you, as you might know, a, a re caucus in the middle of a uh, congressional session is is pretty dramatic. Um, especially if it, especially because it had to shift the majority. Um, but uh, I, I definitely I don't agree with with I how they did that. I think they they gave in to the frankly nonsense nonsensical demands of the now libertarian Republicans, and we saw their willing their they their continuing willingness to to obstruct um, as they before they had used the broken Senate rules. Um, now I've managed to pass better Senate rules, but they're still attempting to obstruct by um, objecting to every single bill, no matter how small or non-controversial it is, uh, which has slowed down the Senate. There have been times where we've gone um, a great deal of time without voting on something um, when we could have voted on something non-controversial, like Senator Jeb's uh, Check Issuance Reform Act, which is... Um, it, it's small, yes, but it's 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 it's... It makes sense, and uh, right. it, it shouldn't be obstructed um, by by anyone. Like I don't, I can't see how anybody would so not support that. So how could you how could you prove to the American people that you can be a um, bipartisan president if, say, you have a very contentious uh, Congress? 
Well, I, I have I have good relations w- with a lot of individuals, but the difference is I have good relations with people who fight for the people, and, and that tends to, and this is why I'm on the left, um, be people on the left. That doesn't mean that I don't work with people on the right. I've worked with people on the right before. Um, for example, I worked to amend a bill with, with, with uh, Senator Ian, um, and I can... I've definitely worked with other individuals as well on the right. For example, um, former President Pro Tempore uh, Lotor, who was unfortunately because of the fact that they worked with me to help try and fix the Senate at the time, they were basically abandoned by by, by their party um, and, and stabbed in the back, which, which shows that you just can't trust many, unfortunately, of the Libertarian Republicans, especially those, especially some of those in the Senate caucus right now. Um, However, that doesn't mean that I won't, at the end of the day, put the good of the people over any partisan squabbling. Thank um, you. I appreciate yeah. that answer. Thank you so much, Senator Epsilon. So uh, we received a question from Dixie for Governor Ted. They asked, as you are the governor of the one-party state, how can we trust that you won't become the one-party president? Well... I really don't understand what the significance of the fact that this is a supposedly a one-party state, despite the fact that the recent elections in the North, with the exception of this most recent one, which unfortunately went uncontested, this, my cabinet at the very beginning, did include libertarians, despite the fact that compared to the population-wise, the percentages, as you saw with SDP versus libertarians, libertarian Republicans, sorry, in the North, I still make sure to represent libertarians in my cabinet and make sure their voices are heard. Now, keep in mind, I did not let their policy guide me. I made sure that their voice, even though they are of a different party, that there was still a bipartisan voice in my cabinet, that being Elkridge, so that they could have their views represented. However, despite this, I did not use the libertarian republicans point as the only point in fact the majority of my cabinet was sdp this was because um, although it might seem like a one-party state these past two sessions we didn't even have a supermajority in the delegation does that sound like a one-party state to you yes the sdp is clearly favored in the north but that's because we've demonstrated them time and time again that we can be trusted. The Elkridge and the Coulter administrations, the previous governors of the Northern state, were complete disasters, being completely incompetent, inactive. And generally, they, during the one of the worst times that the Northern state has gone through in recent history, failed it entirely. When I came around, I was able to repair the really, the completely destructed cabinet that was doing absolutely nothing for months on end into what is now the most effective cabinet in the entire United States, barring the federal cabinet. I was able to guide the North through a pandemic recovery that made over a hundred, nearly a hundred million people be immunized in a quick and effective manner without spending too much money and without making sure and without <clears throat> making sure to not keep the people who need the vaccinations the most to get them what they need first um, and yes from this activity that we've saw i believe that the northern people have seen that 
they can't really trust the libertarian Republicans to keep them safe. In fact, the lone libertarian in the last session of the Northern delegation, Elkridge, uh, the one of two, sorry, did not pass, did not submit a single bill in the entirety of their session. That is ridiculous. There are five people there. Anyone who's elected there must pass a bill. So I believe that I don't serve a one-party state because we take hostile actions to the libertarian Republicans. I serve what cannot even be described as one-party state because the people have seen that the libertarian Republicans do not work for them. The left works, we work to make the foundation in which their country stands upon, their state stands upon, be a fundamentally fair one. And that's why I believe that's they have voted they us. That's why they chose me unanimously. I was running uncontested and why the delegation turned out to be a four-fifths leftist supermajority. Right. So I have uh, just one of those, uh, you know, hot button topic questions. Uh, this is going to be for all candidates. Um, and we'll start with uh, Senior Senator Epsilon. Uh, would you consider your two opponents for vice president? Uh, if, if they came to me and, and, and offered it, I would definitely consider it. But at the, at the moment, I, I oh, don't have any... Oh, would you consider your, your uh, opponents to be your VP should you be the nominee? Excuse me. Oh, would I would I consider them? Um, yeah, right now, right now, um, I, I'm I'm definitely looking at multiple options when it when it comes to the vice president. So um, both both Governor Ted and and uh, House Majority Leader Piper are exceptional individuals who would who would be excellent vice presidents. Um, but I, I'll just have to. It will depend on the circumstances at the, at the time and 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 the. Uh, the, the merits of each individual um, who I ultimately pick, but yes, they they are they are both um, options for if I were to win the nomination to be my running mate. All right, and um, House Majority Leader Viper, uh, would you consider either of your two opponents for um, vice president? Should you be the nominee? Um, if I was ever fortunate enough to be the presidential nominee, I might consider having those candidates. Um, for vice president, but I would like to favor probably a vice president that comes from a different state for me, simply because I want to increase diversity. We want a ticket that reflects the national referendum, the national mandate. But other than that, I also wish for a, a vice president that is very competent, that understands foreign policy, that understands economic policy, social policy, um, and that can run a executive branch effectively um, and has an agenda that's similar to mine. So the answer is in some ways, yes, but I, I would like to consider mostly uh, someone from a different state for me. All right. Thank you for that answer. And uh, Governor Ted, would you consider either of your opponents to be the uh, your appointed VP should you win the nomination? Although both of these candidates would make great vice presidents, I have no doubt about that. I wish you consider everyone we can, and I really hope to be able to make a vice president who is a woman, who is able to effectively support an executive branch that is able to preside over the Senate with efficiency, and also one that is able to not only serve as an advisory body, but should the worst ever happen, one that is able 
to effectively lead the people as the acting president and do so pushing the policies that the people deserve to make the foundation of America straight. Thank you. Thank you so much. So uh, the one of the last questions that I have for you is going to be, um, again, for all candidates, um, we're going to start with uh, Majority Leader, House Majority Leader Viper. With Bo being, oh, sorry about the slight technical difficulties here. With Bo being the obvious choice for the LRP nomination to president, who do you feel is most likely to be the VP nominee from the LRP? And do you feel anyone in the LRP is a serious threat to your chances? Well, look, I don't think, I think anyone can be quote unquote a threat to our chances if we don't campaign effectively. If you make our case well, the American people, I think we can win regardless of who the vice presidential candidate is, regardless of who the nominee is from the libertarian Republican side. Now, as for what I can speculate from the libertarian Republican side, you could probably speculate that some of the experienced members like uh, Senator um, Elkridge, who has been Secretary of State, would likely be a viable candidate. But um, there may be other names that may also be floated that um, I may not be able to anticipate. But politics is not always predictable. And um, it's not about being able to predict what's going to happen. It's about being able to make your case and then letting, letting the American people decide. All right. I appreciate that. Um, Governor Ted, uh, with Bo being the obvious choice, who do you feel is most likely to be the VP nominee? And uh, do you feel that anyone in the LRP is a serious threat to your presidency? Should you be the nominee? Um, I really can't comment on who the Libertarian Republicans might choose for their vice president, because as of right now, we absolutely have no idea how the choosing process for the nomination process of who will become the vice presidential nominee for the Libertarian Republican Party. Although they have several options, such as Elkridge, Senator Elkridge, uh, Wonder, and several other candidates, I believe that if we can prove to the American people that we are for them, that we are a party that serves the people, not the corporations, which Libertarian Republicans clearly have not, then regardless of their vice presidential pick, we will win because the people will see that we are not fighting for the massive corporations, the ones with the big pocket money and interests. We are fighting for them. And really, if we demonstrate that, we will win. All right. I appreciate that answer. Uh, Senior Senator Epsilon, uh, same question. Um, yeah, I, I definitely um, agree with Governor Ted, actually. I, I can't speak for, for who the, the Libertarian Republicans will choose, but I believe that if we show um, the, the American people that, that we are serious, that we are pushing meaningful policy like we have in the Congress with the Student Loan Relief Act, with, with the Federal Economic Security Act, with... Um, the previous affirmative consent act and and the federal reauthorization act which was which was massive because it, it reauthorized uh, a great deal of important programs um i, I think that the, the american people will, will will turn out for that and, and they will definitely be in be in support for for that meaningful progressive agenda um to make sure that the government actually works for them and, and not the corporations that's why we passed the 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 we the people amendment to make sure that our our you know system works for the people um 
And so I think that the American people see that. And, and I believe if, if we are able to uh, present that agenda to the, the American people, then um, I, I definitely think that, that um, they'll, they'll end up supporting that. Um, thank you. Thank you. All right, so uh, this is going to be our final question of the night, and then we will go ahead and let you all make your closing statements. Uh, this is for all candidates. Why do you think you are the best choice to beat the presumptive libertarian nominee, uh, Vice President Bo? House Majority Leader uh, Viper, why do you think you are the best choice to beat the presumptive uh, nominee, Vice President Bo? Uh, thank you. I think it's because in recent times, I understand the flaws of the executive, and that's why I can fight against a a, a candidate that, um, like Vice President Bo, because I was, the one, I was the one who wrote Title V of the December 5 budget that outlined specific spending reports that the, the president was not able to fulfill. I was the one who called out the president for, for not dealing with China effectively. I called it out straight to his face and the Secretary of the State for not calling out China for their transgression in the South China Sea. I was the one who called out Vice President Bo to his face when he came to committee for not being able to provide spending reports, for, to not be able to tell us how the departments were spending money for the budget when we did the Budget Oversight Committee. I know how broken the executive branch is because I worked firsthand through the budget with Speaker Rose, who's now apparently interviewing us, um, <laughs> to to see how broken the executive government is. And after seeing how broken it was, I know how to fix it because I have been intimate with every specific department, every program that has existed within the executive branch that the executive was not able to do themselves. So I know what's going on in the executive government. I know what pro problems exist and I know how to fix it. Thank you. I appreciate that answer. Thank you. Uh, Governor Ted, uh, why do you feel you're the best presumptive nominee uh, to fight against Vice President or to, to take on Vice President Bo? I believe I'm the best nominee to fight on Vice President Bo because I have proven both to the Northern people and to the United States at large that I am capable of leading the government as an executive figure to push policy that meaningfully benefits the average person. My proven record of possibility of productivity, being able to become the second most productive governor in these past third, three years, passing over 18 executive orders in a single term, will let the voters know with full confidence that when they vote for me, they will get a president that can work to create an active and competent administration that works for them. Although all of my fellow candidates here on the debate stage have demonstrated the ability to create and pass meaningful legislation, I am unique in the ability to say that I have evidence that I will oversee, that I can make a cabinet that will effectively do their duties, that will pass their spending reports, that will pass secretarial orders, that will meaningfully create change for people of the United States, rather than just bolstering their portfolios. Thank you. Thank I, you. That I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Governor Ted. Uh, Senior Senator Epsilon, uh, why do you think you are the best choice to beat presumptive uh, Libertarian Republican nominee Vice President Bo? Thank you. Um, I, I believe I am the best choice because uh, to, to take on uh, Vice President Bo in the, in the upcoming general election, because I've shown the American people that I can push and enact and pass through, con through Congress meaningful legislation and change. And at the end of the day, spending reports like what House Majority Leader uh, Viper said and, and executive actions like what, what uh, Governor Ted said are, are vital aspects of the of the presidency but the most meaningful 
the most meaningful actions that the president can take is working with Congress to get legislation through that that overhauls comprehensively the way um, the the way the government um, helps and, and and works with the American people. Um, we don't remember FDR because of executive actions they've they've taken. We we remember them for the New Deal for Social Security. We don't remember Lyndon B. Johnson because of any executive actions. We remember them because of the New Deal, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. You know, uh, Obama, for example, passed a lot of executive orders. But in, in comparison to that, most people remember Obama for the Affordable Care Act. You know, we want meaningful legislation. And I can, and with my extensive links with Congress as Senate Majority Leader and working with people such as, for example, <laughs> our interviewer, Speaker Rose, um, in, in the Congress to get legislation passed that will help people. Um, that is what we want. That is what we want in a president, someone who works with Congress, who gets the job done, who knows what they're doing. Um, and I am somebody who can uh, show all those qualities if I'm elected president. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we're going to go ahead and just move on into final closing comments. Anything you want the listeners to know before we move on to the ballot stage in the left joint primary? Um, we're going to go ahead and start with Governor Ted. Would you like to give a closing statement? Yes. I've shown the Northern people that I am capable of serving an effective and competent administration. I've passed meaningful issues on things such as the ranked choice voting throughout the Northern states. I've brought our state through one of the worst crises in both administration and in a public health emergency since, I found the, since the founding of the Northern state. And really, I will bring that same competence, activity, and ability to serve to the federal cabinet and administration if I'm elected as president. I have shown everyone here that I am able to be productive. I have passed more executive orders, say for Garland than anyone else. I have made a cabinet which was once incompetent and inactive, as I said before, into one of the best in the state. I can do these same things with the federal cabinet. It's falling behind, but I can fix things up. And together with your vote, we can make this movement to fundamentally set the American foundation straight so that we can all thrive so that in the end we can look towards a better tomorrow thank you thank you governor ted uh house majority leader viper do you have any closing statements um i can only say that i thank every american i thank everyone for listening to this debate i hope it was informative i hope that you learned a lot about our stances regarding various issues like the economy regarding foreign policy regarding social issues I thank Governor Ted, I thank Senator Epsilon, I thank Speaker Rose for uh, their involvement in this debate, for making this happen. I thank uh, the process for being more open, and I hope for us to have more debates that are open um, and that we have primaries that are competitive, that are diverse, that have a, a field of players, a field of uh, competitors that are qualified. And I can say with confidence that whether it be me, whether it be Governor Ted, whether it be Senator Epsilon, whoever wins a nomination, I'm confident that they'll do a good job as president of the United States. And I am confident that they'll make a good case in the general election. Thank you, House Majority Leader Viper. 
uh, Senior Senator Epsilon, any closing remarks? Yeah, I, I just wanted to, to thank everybody for joining us today, it's especially my um, my fellow candidates, House Majority Leader uh, Viper Darius and, and Governor uh, Ted. I know for Governor Ted, it was a little bit of a hassle to join us, so I really appreciate them joining us, especially, um, as well as, of course, Speaker Rose for, for putting on this um, debate. And I would just say to the American people to um, take a take a close look at all the candidates here. Um, I, I believe that that I have something to provide to the American people. I have, from day one of my political career, always fought for the people. Um, and if I am elected president, it, it will be the exact same. I will always be by the people, for the people. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Article One. Article One is a Voice of the People podcast.